What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Warrior Soul Podcast. This is where we deliver tools, tactics, strategies, and ideas to help the U.S. military veteran community and anybody else willing to listen to live their absolute best lives. Um, You know, I've been doing this podcast for five years and I've had the honor to speak to so many great people, people like Nick Kumulatsos and and Pat McNamara, both veterans who are doing amazing things in the civilian world. I've had the chance to to speak to great authors like Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power. I've had a chance to sit down with Grant Cardone and and so many others, Uh, you know, um, Ryan Mickler of Order of Man and and so many other great people. Uh, Today's no different. I'm speaking to Mr. Mark Cameron. Mark served for 30 plus years as a U.S. Marshal, and in that time, he went on some great adventures, and what he's done is he's translated that life into a career as a fiction author. If you've heard of Mark, it's probably because you've read one of his novels. He's got the uh, Arliss Cutter series out there. He's got the Jericho Quinn series out there. He's also worked on some of the Tom Clancy series, uh, Jack Ryan. So, you know, this guy is is a top-notch author. He put some great books out there. He's got his latest book out now. It's called Bone Rattle, and that's part of the Arliss Cutter series. Um, But beyond that, this guy is, he's just a really interesting fellow. Um, Really interesting, really awesome fellow too. You know, like I said, he spent a lot of time with the U.S. Marshals. He's got a second degree black belt in jujitsu. This guy is such a great author because he's lived a lot of life and he studied people. And, you know, today he came on to talk about his new book, but also to talk about some of the things that go into doing the work he does. Um, you know, he brings a lot of advice here to the table. And I have to say that this is one of the favorite interviews I've ever done. Um, it was a really great conversation. And um, he actually said it was one of his favorite interviews too, which, you know, I don't want to give myself a big head over here, but but I think it was a really, really awesome conversation. Um, you guys are going to get so much out of this. We're going to have all the links to Mark's work up on the show notes for this episode at www.warriorsoulagoge.com. That's A-G-O-G-E. And um, I'm going to stop yapping my gums over here so we can get into this episode with the author, the man, Mr. Mark Cameron. Mark Cameron, welcome to the Warrior Soul Podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Where are you located right now? I am in my home office in Anchorage, Alaska. That's awesome. How is it up there? It's warming up. We're in the mid-40s today, balmy mid-40s. I just got back from Texas visiting my mother where it was in the 90s, so I'm happy to be back where it's a little cool. (laughs) <laughs> i'm in the uh the opposite which is uh fort lauderdale florida right now uh, so it's uh, a yeah. good and hot outside we love coming to visit you in the winter but <laughs> we, <laughs> we like, we're we're in the kind of the crummy muddy dusty season right now that actually i think i talked about it in the beginning of bone rattle um yep. everything's melting and you've got sixty thousand dogs in the city and all their leavings are turn into dust it's a it's probably i love alaska but we call it breakup and that's my my least favorite time of the year here 
Yeah, I was reading about that, the breakup, the uh the um landmines that you find from the dogs after the uh yeah. the milk happens and everything yeah. like that. That's right. Everything's so beautiful when it snows, but then you you learn as things recede and melt that things are not quite what they seem. Yeah. <laughs> so I I grew up in Connecticut and then um, I did a lot of Arctic cold weather training when I was in the Marine Corps and I, I, I grew to absolutely hate the cold. So when I had the <laughs> choice to move somewhere, I said, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm never going to be cold again. So yeah, I, I hear you. I, I grew up in Texas where it was super hot and I'm not, I'm the opposite. I can put on a lot of clothes. Of course I wasn't having to do Marine Corps stuff and going out and, you know, hardshipping it and doing that sort of thing. So we, uh, I, I love the cold. Yeah. Well, you did serve in the, in the U S marshals for over 20 years. Um, prior to that, I know you were a police officer, a local police officer. Um, and, and, you know, you got into writing and, and, uh, you took over for Tom Clancy, uh, on a few of those books there. And, and you've got your own series here. You have this Arliss Cutter series and a few others. How'd you get into writing? No, but when I really wanted to write since I was a little kid. I We took a lot of road trips um, when I was a boy, and it was just me and my sister for the first 15 years where I had a couple of brothers, three brothers come along. But we'd take road trips, and my father was a, a storyteller himself, and he but he didn't like the radio on in the car. He liked it quiet. And so mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of time on long road trips in the back of my dad's Plymouth Valiant writing just to entertain myself because there wasn't any music playing and they were, you know, two or three days of driving. And I really kind of, my mom kept me supplied in pencils and legal pads. And mm-hmm. um, I just always loved to write. So when I got into law enforcement, you've been around, you know, police before I'm sure. And, and military folks as well. We're kind of living the kind of life where it lends it lends itself to stories. Yeah. And so I get a, a real kick out of kind of hanging out, um, listening to other people's tales. And um, it just sort of naturally, the, the, the transition took a while. I mean, I, I spent 20 years writing and getting rejection letters, but the transition to wanting to write and writing, you know, while I was working was pretty smooth. I got to ask you about that. You know, those rejection letters, uh, I've written stuff before, not, not in the length of a book, but I've written a lot of articles and things like that. And, um, you know, I also did some, some graduate work was in a PhD program. And one of the most isolating things, uh, in the world for me was writing. Um, and, and I can imagine for you getting those rejection letters, rejection letter after rejection letter, what what kept you going during that time period? What was what was the thing that that made you really uh, really want to push there? That's a good question, and I, I guess the the short answer is I wasn't writing to get published. I was writing because I enjoyed writing. I wanted to get published, and and to me the especially by the time I got on with the marshal service, I had a good job. I always I'm quoted all the time as saying that writing, being a successful novelist is the second best job in the world. Mm-hmm. Being a deputy marshal was, I'm, I miss it all the time. It was the best job for me that I could have ever had. And so during that whole time when I, you know, the, really the kudos should go out to my wife because I would come home and 
like you say, it's kind of isolating. You, I would go in and when other family things were going on, I mean, I love my kids. I love my wife and we'd do things together, but every spare moment I had, I was with the, you know, with my typewriter and these, I was writing on a typewriter that mm -hmm. my wife gave me back in 1984. Um, so I just enjoyed the process. I enjoyed telling stories and kind of use those, you know, I'd read, I'd read, um, the book hadn't been written then, but like books like Stephen King's On Writing, where he talked about his rejection letters and other writers and how they got rejected. Most, I shouldn't say every, because I know a couple of kind of immediate success stories, but it's very rare. You write, and plus writers, well, you've written articles and short things as well. And it, it's harder to write short stuff than it is a novel. What did uh, Thomas Jefferson say? You know, I'd written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. It's, it takes time to craft something concise. And with a novel, you can, in fact, my novels always end up 10,000 words longer than the published book because I go and I excise things. I think most novelists do that. So I just use those stories from other writers um, to to kind of realize this is all part of the process. The rejection letters are part of the process. And actually the Arliss Cutter books came about, actually the Jericho Quinn series came about because of a rejection letter I got from a major uh, New York publisher. I'd already had some Westerns out under the pen name Mark Henry and my agent, I wrote some Western or some thrillers about Alaska and my agent, Robin Rue with Writer's House, who's a fantastic agent. She's been my literary agent now for 17 years. She couldn't sell them. And, you know, I couldn't blame her, but the uh, the books were maybe, you know, I was still learning to write a thriller type novel. Uh, but I got a, um, a bunch of rejection letters. And I had, up to that point, I had a drawer full from articles I'd written and short stories. But I got this rejection letter from this large publisher, uh, editor at this large publishing house, and it was a page and a half long. And as you know, if you've ever gotten one, rejection notes are usually the tiny little line. You, they could get 25 of them on each sheet of paper, and they come sort of fluttering out of the envelope that you provided <laughs> for your own, you know, sword to fall on. And um, But this rejection letter was very effusive in its praise of my writing, not my book, but my writing style, and went on to say what I should be writing. You need to write something over the top. Think of Jason Bourne with your background in martial service. You should think about this geopolitical. And then he ended the, the editor, acquiring editor, ended the note by saying, and really, who cares about Alaska? This was back in oh, like the early 2000s. And who cares about, and my protagonists were some Alaska Native kids. Mm -hmm. and indigenous folks and um so and he said who cares about alaska and readers are really not going to warm to these alaska native kids and it really upset me made me mad because this was where i lived this is what i enjoyed storytelling about but i went and wrote this kind of over the top series about a osi agent that rides a motorcycle and has a marine corps gunnery sergeant buddy fun book to write but I thought it would be a one-off. I'd write a Jason Bourne kind of James Bond-esque kind of thing. And they bought the series and we've done 10. So they, and those books actually became the, the 
the avenue that I got the Clancy books for. But then 10, 11, 12 books down the road, I was able to sell enough books, get the publishers to believe. Plus the United States or the world fell in love with Alaska and that, that changed. We got, I don't know how many reality shows are being filmed up here at any one time. Yep. And um, I was able to rework those first books and change some of the plots around and use some of the things I knew that I got rejections on. And those became the Arliss Cutter series. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you think, um, you know, had you not been a writer, do you think transitioning out of the Marshall service would have been a lot more difficult for you? The reason I ask that is because our audience here, you know, mostly veterans who, who, who've done their service, they're getting out now, or they've been out for a while. A lot of them are looking for their next thing. Um, how did it help you in that way? That's a, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because I have friends in the military. I, I, the Clancy books give me sort of open doors into military folks. And I, I won't say what his actual job was, but he was a very elite high up guy that's getting out as a, as a officer that commanded a lot of really elite folks. And we've sort of compared notes because I was the chief here and mm -hmm. there's a real, you know, my, my youngest son is a, a SWAT operator. He's a sniper. He's loves his job. He's got all these buddies and, you know, SWAT teams, they have like, you know, a red team and a blue team. And I go out and talk to his buddies and I'm, you know, I'm part of the gray team. I'm gone. I'm not, I, they don't want to hear my war stories. I'm the old dude that carried a 686 revolver. I'm, I'm not relevant anymore. Or you could think that. Right. And so I have a lot of talks with my retiring friends in the military and law enforcement. It's really easy to tell yourself that lie that you're not relevant because you're not doing the same job, but the truth is you just have to find something that not to make you relevant because you already are. You just have to find something that reminds you of that relevance. And for me, that was writing and helping other people tend to, you know, a, a podcast like you got going that serves other people rem, reminds you of your relevance when it comes to other human beings and really the military, the law enforcement, it's all a people business. And we are, you know, in, in the, in the, our job is to protect the people we love, go about it in different ways. You know, our, our missions are different, but not being able to do that um, and being kind of ripping the bandaid off is, is hard. It, it, uh, it's, it sounds like you've chatted with folks, maybe you had some of that. A whole lot, <laughs> a whole lot. Absolutely. You know, um, and that's one of the things, I mean, I, I talk to guys all the time and, um, a lot of them are trying to get back into contracting or, 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 or trying to kind of relive this life that they once had in their older years. And, you know, I think, you know, to some extent that could be a way, but there's also another way, which is trying to remake yourself and trying to find the next mission and, and, you know, coming of age, I guess the best word for it is gracefully, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, not trying to hold on to this thing that just doesn't exist anymore, you know? Oh, ab and, absolutely. That's exactly right. Not, not that next mission is a perfect, you should write a book because that, that is the, <laughs> the perfect 
a description of what we should be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, you know, take it, thinking about your characters and, and, and the type of people that you write about and hear the stories that you create, how do you come up with the characters? How do you come up with those personalities and, and think about all the details and intricacies of a human being? Cause that's essentially what you're doing. You're creating a human being right well, out of your imagination. Yeah. How does that well, come about? And you know, they don't come about out of whole cloth. It's, it's, um, it's about observation and you, you know, we, we come across interesting folks all the time, whether in, you know, in law enforcement, it might be the quote unquote bad guys, the outlaws that we deal with, the, the people that we, that I worked with, you know, shoulder to shoulder, the, the bad bosses, the, the really good bosses, the jerks in the back, you know, in the back room, in the squad room that no other deputy could get along with because they were just constantly making weird decisions and but you you learn from everybody and I sort of I mean I took mental notes but I took I took notes notes and not that I based any one character on any one individual but I certainly looked at the human condition you talked about the what makes people tick and I think that's a real I get asked the question a lot about um from writers now from people wanting to write and learning to write and i the advice i always give is just to get your nose out of your your smartphone the we we've stopped i just flew back from from texas as i mentioned to visit my my mom and sister and my my son's in the air force in, in lackland going through his medical residency and so we're visiting the grandkids after a year and some months because of covid for the first time but I noticed walking through the airport, nobody's looking around. Everybody's been over looking at their phone, sort of, sort of air hockey bumping off each other as they're walking kind of automaton. And, I, uh, and I'm guilty of looking at my phone more than I should, but I may get a point when I'm in public like that to stand back against the wall and watch people. And that's what I did growing up. I, I tell everybody, being a deputy marshal and a a uniformed police officer and a detective and all that, but particularly being a deputy marshal because the quote unquote boring stuff that we do, like hauling prisoners across the country in a caged sedan, you learn a lot about human nature when you're, you've got two of them in the backseat of your Chevy Caprice and you're listening to them talk and they're chatting with you and they get bored. And so you talk as human beings and uh, it's, it's uh Thriller Writer 101. I mean, it, it's just learning about people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, it always bugs me out when I see how much people aren't paying attention to their surroundings, you know, and my job right now, I work in a factory. So we get a lot of young guys in here and they're just not aware. And if you're not aware in a factory, you could, you could come out of the factory missing parts that you had when you went in there. So, uh, so that, that's something that, that really bugs me out, but also in public, you know, I'll look around at people when I'm stopped at intersections and they're literally like dazed out or they're looking at their phone and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I, I just don't get that. Nope, I agree. I agree 100%. Our kids, I would harp at my kids all the time about plugging up their ears with their earphones while they walked the dog or just were out and about and just being aware. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, 
like you mentioned, being out in public, you never know what's going to happen. It's a safety issue, but I think it's a safety issue for our psyche too. We need to, we need to be present in what's going on around us. And I think that's, that's something that people are lacking a bit now, myself included more than I used to be. Tell me a little bit about your latest book here, bone rattle. Um, uh, it's come out. Yeah. What's the story there? Uh, yeah. And- so the, this is the third in the Arliss cutter series. Arliss cutter is a former army ranger who, I mean, the, the, the little backstory of him is that when he was 16 years old, he, he met a beautiful young 16 year old girl in Florida in Minnesota key out when he was swimming with his brother, who's older than him. And the brother was cooler and taller and smoother and she married the brother. And so in the beginning of this series, Arliss has been married four times. He's been to the mil- He's been in the military. Some tough stuff happened to him in Afghanistan, but he's come back to work with the marshal service. Some things have happened in his life and I've met people like this. I'm, I'm kind of one of these people. I don't let bad, like bullying behavior stand. And he's the kind of guy that just draws a line very clearly that doesn't matter if it's his job or whatever is in jeopardy, he's going to stop that kind of bullying behavior. So he's, he's kind of a, a brash guy. His brother gets killed. He has to move up to Alaska to help take care of his sister-in-law who he still has a carried a torch for and her children. So he's fish out of water, this Florida boy in Alaska, having to stay in the same house with a girl that married his brother and take care of her kids. And then he comes up against various mysteries along the way, but he's, he's tall, he's gruff. He's, he's kind of quiet and taciturn and he's got this really loud um, kind of obnoxious, but in a sweet way, a Polynesian gal that's his partner named Lola. And she's just a super good partner to sort of rein him in when he needs reining in. But she also provides a foil so that he can teach her man hunting, tracking, all that kind of stuff. So the books generally deal with some different part of Alaska. I've been on personally on tracking missions down in Southeast Alaska where a guy chopped another guy's head off and fled into the woods and we tracked him for three days before we found him. And up on the North slope garden judges was the second one. And uh, this one has to do with some political issues down in uh, Juneau, which is our state capital. And you can't get to it by car. You have to, the the joke is that the only three ways to get to Juneau, Alaska are by plane, boat or birth canal. And so, um, that sort of isolates things. And so marshals, because of our duties, deputy marshals can, can enforce any federal law and we can also assist locals. And so I just sort of work from that and he ends up assisting the state troopers in the Juneau police department and going after some really creepy, violent criminals that are, that have a native uh, Alaska native bone rattle that's worth a lot of money and sort of the hunt for that so it's an adventure story that i hope um you know i i want it to be a page turner that people like the adventure but the characters to me are very real and the and alaska itself is a real character with the weather and the the um 
just the vastness and the isolation of it. Cause I, we've lived here 22 years. And if I can write a story that makes people want to come to Alaska, but feel a little bit of trepidation because it's such a wild place, then I've done my job. We, we always joke that, you know, in Alaska is a great place because you step out of the RV and into the food chain. So that's awesome. That's awesome. I flew into Juneau once on the way back from Okinawa. And uh, I remember, I think the plane took like a little bit of a, a steeper uh, decline into the airport because of the mountains surrounding it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the big glacier right there. And yeah, it's a cool approach into Juneau. Yeah. Beautiful. That's awesome. That's awesome. With um, when you talk about Alaska as a character, you know, you're you're from these these two, you know, uh, I guess you could say what's the word for Texas and Alaska? They're they're two states with personalities, right? You know, yeah. I was from Connecticut growing up. Nobody's gonna get a tattoo of Connecticut <laughs> or anything like that. I think I saw one person with a tattoo of Connecticut. And I was like, "What are you doing?" But uh, but Alaska, you know, or, or Texas, being from either one of those places says something about you. And and what's that like for you? You know, being a Texan in, in Alaska, and 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 also, I guess at, at this point, also considering yourself a full full blown Alaskan. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh it's kind of fun. We joke about it up here. The there's a when I first moved up here, you know, the, the pipeline's been going for decades now, but uh there's a lot of southern folks up here that you know, oil men and women that work on the oil, you know, on the north slope and they, up here they just call it the slope. You're a slope worker. Um many of my friends work up on the slope, but there's a a old joke that's still told that a happiness to an Alaskan is watching a, a Texan leave with an Oklahoman under each arm, you know, the, but, but now <laughs> there's very few people that were born here. And, you know, I mean, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say there's few, but I think the people like me have sort of overwhelmed the Alaskans that were born here and went to school here. And if I just went by the number of people of my friends that were, actually born here and i do have a few but we do we do joke about it a bit i i talk to my friends in texas i have a a t-shirt that's got a picture of alaska with this tiny little scale size texas on it and it it says uh, you know alaska pissing off texas since 1959 because now we're the you know we're the biggest state now right um but i still hold allegiance to texas as far as you know, that's my home and I stayed and I love the people there, but Alaska gets in your blood and uh, it is a bigger, a larger than life. Uh, Both of them are larger than life states with real personalities that, you know, Texas, if you start in McAllen and drive North, it could take you more than a day to get out through the panhandle and Alaska, you can't even same way except a couple of days (laughs) and you can't even get there (laughs) by, by car. What do you do when you're when you're not writing? I know um, you're a martial artist. Um, you practice jujitsu, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, less and less practice the older I get. Jujitsu is one of those beautiful arts that it's the pliant way. So I still stay involved in strategy and I work out. I don't I don't mix it up on the mats like I used to, but I a little bit and roll around. You know, practice arrest techniques with my sons and grandkids and whatnot but i consider myself kind of a tactical grandpa now so i like to stay 
tactically aware. I, you're rarely will you ever see me in um, anything that looks like a you know shoot me first vest or shirt or pants or Oakley glasses or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with that. I just don't want to look like I need every advantage I can get if the <laughs> crap hits the fan. And so I want to look as much like a the grandpa that I am so that if I need to do something, I can keep my strategy. But but I enjoy sailing. We beautiful waters up here for sailing and I enjoy motorcycle trips. I've ridden up and down the Alaska Highway many times uh, on a my BMW a, a GS Adventure, one of the bigger, kind of like the the um, suburban of the you know the Chevy suburban of the BMW motorcycle world. I and I uh, I, I rode it a couple of years ago. Rode it with my youngest son. He rode it on a Triumph Scrambler, and I had the big old GS. But all those things, I oh, and I fish. Love to fly fish. Um, we fill the freezer up here with meat. My wife fills a freezer with fish and I fill the other one with red meat. So we're very avid outdoorsmen. Um, I still love to track and get out anything outdoors, but there's really not a time that I'm not riding when I, if I, my son and I have done some remote uh, adventures and that we've flown into and he takes pictures of me. I still, at least for a couple hours a day, it's sort of a, illness with me i guess i've just got to create a little bit what's your typical daily schedule like so i my office is just right across the hall from our bedroom so i get up whenever i wake up i go ahead and get up and uh, the older i get the earlier that is mm -hmm. and um i try to get some writing done before i check any emails or anything like that and uh, you know write for a couple of hours and then one of the things that I really try to do, and I didn't make this up. I think Hemingway did it this way. Elmore Leonard did it this way. I try to end my writing day on some sort of rising action. So metaphorically speaking on the backswing of a punch so that the next sentence I write is the punch landing or the, the chase, you know, in the middle of the chase car, boat, foot pursuit, whatever, something where there's action. So that when I sit back down the next morning, I'm starting right where I already knew I was going and get that writing blood going, if you will. And uh, then if I have, you know, because I don't write like writing exposition, but you have to in a book, you have to do some explaining and pointing things out. But if I, I just noticed about myself that if I can get going and sort of first rattle out of the box, write some action, and then I try to write about 2,000 words a day. I'll take a break in the middle of the day, do some research, answer emails. And I've kind of learned that if I have action and I write in this fight scene or chase scene or tense action scene, it doesn't have to necessarily be physical action, but some tension. Um, and if I write 2,000 words and I haven't got to another action scene, then mm. my plotting is off and my timing is off and I need to reevaluate the way I'm telling the story. Gotcha. So, gotcha. and then I, and then I generally edit a little bit in the afternoon, do some more research and then um, spend do, time doing family things. And then I'll, I'll, I'll write a little bit in the night or read with a, 
with the Tom Clancy's, especially, I do a lot of reading and interviewing and studying. But and and for the uh, Arliss Cutters as well, because I I don't know everything about all the different parts of Alaska, so I like to call and talk to people that are there and pick their brains. That's that's really. I always find it so interesting to see you know, how people set up their days because uh, everybody's different, but you also mm-hmm. see certain patterns amongst successful people, um, particularly writers. You know, I, I've heard that before, you know, try to try to end off on a rising action or, or you know, so that you mm-hmm. can get right back into it the next day and set yourself up for success the next day. Yeah, because it's so easy, especially in this day and age. Now, I had, now Bone Rattle came out Tuesday, and so – Luckily, everybody's talking about it. It's it would and and I would say, um, I don't read my reviews. I don't I don't mm-hmm. see any good in that. It's like knowing your IQ. If mm-hmm. if you're really smart, then you get, you know, sort of a big head. And if you're not really smart, you get depressed. And yeah. reviews. I love to get reviews, and I I'm glad for people to send in reviews for other readers. But I don't I don't write to the reviews because frankly, by the time people read bone rattle, I've already finished the fourth one. It's, it's in the editor's hands and I'm working on another Tom Clancy. So I'm at least a book and a half, sometimes two books down the road. And so I, it doesn't do me any good and I can read and I have such a, I think many writers have kind of an imposter syndrome where Mm -hmm. we're always terrified that, people are going to come to their senses and realize, Oh, well, that guy's an idiot. So I, I can get 50 five-star reviews and not believe them. And I get one, one or two star review and it, it upsets me. Not, yeah. you know, I just, I just makes me feel sad for a little while and I shouldn't be that way. I should be more resilient, but I know that about myself and I learned it from the first couple of books. So I don't bother myself with that. So, but even with that, with Bone Rattle coming out, I can answer emails. I can go to Instagram. I can go to Twitter. I can go to Facebook and do an endless circle of not doing any writing, but answering right. messages and checking on what I posted here and responding. And it, 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 will, it will kill you as a writer. It just completely damns your forward progression. So... I have to be on social media, but I loathe it and stay away from it as much as I can as Same a writer. Here. Same here. I can't stand it, but I got to be on there. Yeah, exactly. We have to be. One of the things as far as timing, and this is the, it's not a secret, it's an obvious thing, but it's the thing that's helped me the most in my life, really. I had a professor in college, a theater professor, my my wife and I met in the theater and um, she actually thought I was going to be a theater professor when we were getting married instead of a copper, but I tricked her and became a cop instead. But, um, she, uh, but I had this theater professor and he took, I guess he saw that I was kind of a procrastinator and he mm-hmm. took me off to the side when I was a freshman in college. And he said, Mark, you will never amount to your full potential unless you learn to utilize those 15 minute segments of time that everybody else wastes. And so many of my great swaths of my book have been written while I was waiting for an airplane or oh, wow. when the jury was in the deliberation and I had to sit outside in the hallway as a young deputy 
you know, with a notepad and I would have an idea. And instead of killing time or playing video poker or words with friends or whatever, or angry birds, I wrote a scene and it doesn't take long if you do that all the time with those 15 or 20 minute, cause it's easy to say, well, I, you know, I just play minesweeper or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, easy to fritter those away, but you add that up and you can get a heck of a lot done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, uh, a, a big thing that I learned over my times, particularly right now, you know, we're in a company with, with very little time. I've got to, I've got to fit things in when I can, you know, like right now I'm, I'm doing this while my guys are on a break. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, that's awesome, Mark. I, you know, I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, you know, like I said, our audience out there, they're, they're, they're mostly veterans um, who, who are getting out or, or, or been out for a while. They're looking for that next thing. What piece of advice would you give them uh, as they're trying to find that next mission? You know, for me, my, my wife, she knew it was going to be hard for me. And so she sent me, we were fortunate enough with the writing. She sent me out of the country. She said, Mark, go to Japan and research this book and get completely away from what you were doing before. But obviously not everybody can do that, but I would look for ways to, to serve other people, go out and try to, you know, people that want to go into, like you said earlier, contracting or things like that, that's like the other job. Good, good on them. That's great. We need that. But there's sometimes it's, it's um, for myself and for friends of mine, it's healthier to look at other venues for that next mission you were talking about. And I think, I think stuff like you're doing where people talk about it and getting with friends that are, you know, the, the central intelligence agency does a fantastic job of, according to my friends of walking people out the door, getting them ready to go sort of, sort of, inoculating them if you will of what Mm -hmm. it's going to be like on the outside world and one of my acquaintances named gary schroen um he wrote a book called first in he was the guy that was jawbreaker that went over after 9 11 and um basically got everything ready for the people that became the horse soldiers the a-teams that came over and worked with the northern alliance well that book begins when he's 57 years old and about to retire. So, and then it talks about them asking him to stay and him going to do this and then retiring. There's plenty of life out there after you retire. It may not be the same thing, but I think talking to folks like you, talking to peers that have gone before, it reminds us that we're relevant and still have something to offer. And anything that somebody can do to, remember that they're relevant and important um, and have things to offer. I don't think it matters what job they go into, whether, you know, creativity is, I'm surprised. I'm amazed at how many, well, uh, another very good friend of mine is a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the Marine Corps, Rip uh, Rawlings, and he's Mm -hmm. become a novelist and we've worked together on some things. He wrote a fantastic book with Mark Graney, called Red Metal. Um, and he's had to make that. He's a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, uh, commanded a lot of folks, and now he's retired. 
So he's writing. So he's done something artistic. And other people start businesses. Doesn't matter. You just you got to get this headspace right first. And I think I see that talking to you that you understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, I mean that's something I've. It, it honestly is a hard lesson to learn. I mean, it took a lot of time, and um, you know, had to had to really work on myself. Had to figure things out a lot, and that is what this show is about: is, is helping guys figure that out, and 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 talking to people like you who've been through so much and who have accomplished so much. That I think that helps helps people out a lot too. Well, good on you for doing it because it's harder than people believe. I, I talk to folks right before they retire and warn them and to a person they come back and say oh my gosh you were absolutely right i had no idea that it was going to be this emotional mm-hmm. because i mean you you go from one day you're you know part of the team you got a top secret clearance you got a red badge you got your m4 or whatever and the next day it's almost like you're Chuck Connors marched out of the gate with your sword broken and your bow. They don't say that, but you feel like an outsider. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's tough, but it happens to, it happens to everybody. It, it's, yep. uh, and it's nothing, it's not even the, the, the tragedy. I think it's the emptiness that follows. Yeah, right. So exactly. it's like, that's the thing is like staring at a blank wall or, or trying to figure out, a, mm-hmm. you feel like there's more pages to be written, but you're having trouble filling the page. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. So, well, Mark, again, I, I want to thank you so much. Um, where can people follow you on? You said you, you had a Twitter account, you had an Instagram account. Um, where, yeah. Where's the best place for people to follow you and keep up with you and your writing? Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm just Mark, Mark Cameron one, the number numeral one um, on Instagram. I'm Mark Cameron books and on Facebook, I'm Mark Cameron books. Um, then I have a website. They can email me through the website, but they're going to see, I, I keep people up to date on book releases and stuff, but mostly on my social media, they're going to see pics of Alaska and adventures and my grandkids. Cause I just, I don't want to be the kind of guy that totally overwhelms people with, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. So. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, uh, you live in a great place. So, so filling up with pictures like that, absolutely. I think that's awesome. And, um, absolutely. you know, the big, biggest thing I'm getting from you here is that, you know, uh, I think you became a writer through living, you know, through, through living life and, and you're telling people to get out there and live life. And, and from that, you, you'll create amazing stories, right? absolutely absolutely even if that story is just your own story it's uh it's worth it to get out and do some things that's awesome well again mark i want to thank you so much for coming on i want to thank you for doing what you do and um you know to everybody out there i hope you got a lot out of this interview um we'll have all the links up for mark's books mark's uh social media followings and his website up on our website uh when we publish this episode and uh you know take this advice to heart people uh get out there live your best lives while you can and uh thanks again mark thank you chris i appreciate it thanks for what you do take care everybody
All right, guys, there you have it. That is an outstanding conversation with Mr. Mark Cameron. Like I said before, we're going to have all of the links to Mark's work up on the show notes for this episode at www.warriorsoulagoge.com. That's A-G-O-G-E. And uh, man, I hope you got a lot out of this. I know I did. Uh, it was really great talking with Mark and I've been diving into his book, Bone Rattle, which I think you definitely should. There's both an audio version and the hard copy. Check those out. Um, And with that, guys, you know, like I said before, get out there and live, right? Mark's been able to do what he's done because he's had such a full life and he gets to understand things about human beings that most people wouldn't because of what he's done. Uh, And if you go out there and you live, you are going to have some things to talk about. So don't hesitate. Just get out there and do it. This is Chris Albert with the Warrior Soul Podcast, and I am out.